0: Hello Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. At a 2014 panel given before a group of state legislators, Randy Barnett speaks on why the Convention of States project has the best strategy to call an Article 5 convention. Barnett is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown University and director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Well, thank you so much. Our next speaker is Randy Barnett. <clears throat> Randy is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown University Law School, uh, Law Center, rather, where he directs the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School. He represented NFIB in his constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act before the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Barnett has been a visiting professor at Harvard Law School, University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern, he's a former state prosecutor, and he wrote a book on proposing amendments to do the kind of thing that we're talking about uh, called the Bill of Federalism. And uh, we are honored to have Randy Barnett uh, on our legal board of reference, uh, on the Jefferson Statement that uh, you received in your materials and to have him with us today. Randy, welcome. Well, it's great to be back at ALEC. I was here a few years ago to talk about a proposed amendment to the Constitution. This is where Mark and I first met. Uh, called a, um, it was called a repeal amendment, in which would empower uh, state legislatures to repeal any federal law or regulation. Uh, it, uh, it, if a majority of states representing a majority of the population uh, would uh, pass a resolution that said they they could then repeal any federal law or regulation. It was a, it was a piece that was promoted by the uh, Virginia Tea Party, and it actually got introduced into both sessions of Congress. And that's kind of um, uh, how I got into the amendments uh, game myself. Um, Let me just talk a little bit about that, uh, what brought me in the amendments uh, interested in Article 5 Convention, and then I'm going to talk about the alternatives that have been proposed to you as to how to move forward and what I think the strengths and weaknesses of these different alternatives are. Um, After after, uh, uh, the Obamacare legislation was enacted, there was a lot of activity uh, among state legislators to pass, in various states, something that was called state sovereignty resolutions. And I started fielding calls from reporters asking me, as a constitutional law professor at Georgetown, what was my opinion about the merits of these state sovereignty resolutions? And some of you may have been involved in that back in the day. And my response to reporters uh, was, at the time, that these were completely meaningless symbolic resolutions that had no constitutional status whatsoever. It might make state legislators feel good to pass these things, but it would affect nothing. It was just something that they could do to check a box, just like Congress does all the time. And then I said, this was sort of spontaneous just in talking to reporters, uh, there happens to be a power in the Constitution that state legislators have. If they actually want to affect the political class here in Washington, they have a constitutional power given to them in the Constitution to call for an amendments convention if they would exercise it. And that was a power given to them. And that's a real constitutional power. And then if you do that, it has real legal effects. And that's what they should do. So I got invited on, after, as a result of being quoted on this, I decided, before I got invited on anyway, I decided, well, you know, if I'm going to advocate this for state legislators, maybe I ought to have a proposal um, uh, for state legislators to be in favor of instead of just doing something in general. So I spent a few days, which is basically what the time it takes to to write an op-ed, and I wrote an op-ed that was published in the Wall Street Journal called In Defense of a Federalism Amendment. And it was something I drafted, it had five parts, and it was about how you could restore constitutional federalism in a single amendment. And I liked it, it was good, it was was a good op-ed. Got a lot of attention, I got more feedback from that op-ed than any other op-ed I'd ever written for the Wall Street Journal, I've written a few. Um, but then I got invited on a, uh, an internet television program that was run by Michael Patrick Leahy, who was involved in the Tea Party movement, and he had me on there to talk about the Federalism Amendment. And he said, "You um, oh, know, let's what do you want? To do? Let's move forward with it. Let's go." Um, and I said, "Well, you know, uh, I think I need to think a little bit more about it. I, sp- I spend a few days working on this thing, but I'm not sure that it's perfect. It needs to be thought more through." And he said, "Well, how long would that take you?" I said, well, it might take me you know, a few weeks. He, well, we'll have you back on the program in a few weeks and, uh, and, and see what you come up with. So as a result of working with uh, Michael Patrick Leahy, we put together a website and we, we elicited feedback. And what I ultimately decided was that one amendment wasn't good enough. One amendment was a problem. If you try to put everything into one amendment, it, it, it starts to work across purposes with each other. And I decided what was the best idea was to come up with a list of amendments, which ended up being called a bill of federalism. <coughs> the repeal amendment that I just told you about was one of the 10 of that list and it was published on Forbes.com and it was it was just like what Mark Levin has done with putting together 11 amendments in the Liberty Amendments book that he put together. Uh, This was done in 2009 in response to this initiative by Michael Leahy. Uh, But one of the things I learned by doing things that way um, is And the way I put the, the amendments together because I got a lot of feedback from the public, we put up a website so we could get feedback from Tea Party people from around the country. One of the things I learned about doing it that way is first of all, we put together a bunch of amendments, and my idea was well there 'll be something there for everyone there 'll be an amendment on unfunded mandates, for example, that will draw state legislators in and there 'll be an amendment on the repeal amendment there 'll be an amendment that would abolish the income tax, uh, replace it with a, 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 a uh, a national sales tax, instead, but make it constitutionally impossible for there to be an income tax anymore. I mean, I would put together, and it would be a balanced budget, a line item veto that would create a line item veto when the president, whenever, whenever the budget was out of balance, uh, and that would be the enforcement mechanism. I put together, and I would get all together a coalition formed around these specific amendments. But what I found out was, is that everybody liked their own amendment, but everybody was against everybody else's amendment. <laughs> So, you couldn't put a coalition together that way. So, it was a nice exercise on my part. It got me interested in amendments. It got me, and by the way, I also discovered how darn hard it is to draft an amendment. It's not easy. I mean, you all draft legislation, but I'll bet you have legislative assistants that are responsible for actually coming up with the language that puts into effect what it is you guys come up with. You can't write it up yourselves. They're actually quite good at the, these legislative drafters. But I found it really hard, because every time I drafted something, I could see how well the Supreme Court could do this with it, and the Supreme Court could do that with that. So it was actually kind of hard to do it on my own, even though I, you know, I think I'm a pretty smart guy. I didn't think I was smart enough to actually do this. So as a result, I, you know, I kind of I put this bill of federalism forward. It is in the appendix to my book, the new edition of my book, Restoring the Lost Constitution. Uh, but then, you know, I sort of let it drop, as you know, everything. And I got I got very involved in the Obamacare litigation for two years. It consumed my life. I was in the media all the time talking about Obamacare, this Obamacare, that Commerce Clause, Necessary and Proper Clause. Um, but then this thing came up, um, and Mark Meckler um, uh, put together this idea of a Convention of the States. Uh, Mark published his book. Mark came up with, two Marks uh, came up with uh, uh, the Convention of the States idea and I became involved with that. So let me just talk now uh, a little bit about the various alternatives that you are being offered if you're interested in Article V, what I think the strengths and and weaknesses are of these alternatives and deal with the number one uh, objection, Issue that faces you at state legislatures before I sit down, uh, and that is the John Birch Society and the Eagle Forum. Those are the—that's the—that's the big uh, two thousand uh, pound gorilla in the room, so to speak. All right. So, where the, what are the three? There's basically three proposals uh, that are being, in a sense, pitched to you or sold to you. Uh, one is a is a proposal that's been around a long time. Uh, it's the balanced budget amendment. The second is something that's called uh, contract. I, I should. The compact. uh, What is it called? Compact for America. America, Right. I should know this because I've seen it a million times. Compact for America. And then there is the convention of the states being put together by Mark uh, and Mike. So which are the? So what are the? What are these three proposals? Well, the balanced budget amendment's been around for a long time. Uh, I see David Bidoff in the back of the room. He's been one of the heroes of this movement in pushing for a balanced budget amendment. Deserves an awful lot of appreciation for all the work he's done uh, on Article Five. And I'm just going to give you my own opinion about this. You're free to reach your own judgments about this. Uh, I share what Mark, basically, I share what Mark Levin said to you earlier today. Uh, We have a lot of problems facing us now. Um, A balanced budget is one of them, but it is not the only one. Um, And we need solutions that are as big as the problems that we have. And unfortunately, nowadays, a balanced budget would not be enough to address the constitutional problems that we have today. Um, In addition to that, virtually every Balanced budget amendment I've seen um, makes exceptions for certain emergency situations. And once you have exceptions built into a balanced budget amendment, then these are something that Congress can ride a truck through. Uh, And these are not something that the Supreme Court's going to enforce. The other problem with balanced budget amendments is that they would tend to rely on the Supreme Court to enforce them, and there's absolutely no reason to be confident that the Supreme Court will enforce a balanced budget amendment. Um, so, these are the, some of the problems I've had with a balanced budget amendment. It's not that I think that they are bad ideas, necessarily, if done right. In fact, I think Nick Dranius' version of a balanced budget amendment that he has in his Compact uh, for America is an actually a pretty good one. Um, and something that I think should be on the table, which is one of the reasons I'm for the Convention of the States proposal, because it actually makes such amendments germane to an amendments convention. Um, so, but that's my problem with the balanced budget amendment. I don't actually have a problem with it. I don't think it does enough, and I'm afraid that it would rely too much on judicial enforcement and cr- build into it exceptions that Congress could exploit to essentially render, render it a nullity. The next proposal that you've heard a lot about is the Compact uh, for America, which is the idea of having a state compact um, that would then uh, set up all the procedures so that with one vote, uh, uh, by a state legislature, everything would kick in in terms of a conditional, uh, uh, they would kick in conditionally as one event occurs and another event occurs and eventually you would have uh, the end result would be a constitutional amendment. It turns out the, the proposal that's being put before you would only result in a balanced budget amendment. So that gives rise to part of my problem with the proposal is that it's only about a balanced budget amendment, it's not about the other things. So right there is a problem, although I think it's one of the best balanced budget amendments I've read. Uh, The other major problem I have with it, however, um, is the following. I want to read to you the the compacts clause of the Constitution that talks about the state's power to enter into compacts with each other. And here's what the Constitution says. It says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. What that means is that no compact that you enter into is valid unless Congress consents to it, which brings Congress back into the ball game again. And that seems to be a deal breaker. Now, what is the argument on the other side of that? The argument on the other side of that is that there are, is Supreme Court precedent that says that states can enter into compacts with each other that will be recognized without congressional assent, consent as long as they don't, with, they don't shrink federal power, they don't shrink the power of Congress or increase the power of states relative to Congress. In other words, another, as long as they don't affect the constitutional balance, states can enter into compacts with each other without the agreement of Congress. Well, that's fine, I've read those cases. Those cases do say that. However, I just don't think that the compact with America qualifies under that exception. In other words, if you look at the Compact for America in in total, including the balanced budget amendment that's part of it, it does shrink the power of Congress. It does increase the power of states. It does so because it gives states the power to raise the debt. That's what the balanced budget amendment contained in that proposal does. That increases state power. It might increase state power in a good way. It reduces Congress's power. It might reduce Congress's power in a good way. But unfortunately, I think it brings it under the compacts clause, which limits the state's ability to enter into compacts with each other without the consent of Congress, and Congress is just not going to consent to something like that. Not like that. Not in that way. If you were to put this together, I just don't see Congress doing that. So that's a problem. So now let's bring us to the third alternative, the Convention of the States. The Convention of the States idea is actually very simple. It's a a call issued by state legislators under Article 5 for a convention. Now, let's talk a little bit about terminology. Mark was absolutely right. Mark uh, Levin was absolutely right when he told you earlier, the Constitution does not authorize a constitutional convention. Article 5 does not speak of a constitutional convention. You must stop talking about a constitutional convention. We had a constitutional convention in this country in Philadelphia in 1787. The Constitution authorizes a convention for proposing amendments. If you have to have a shorthand for that convention, convention, just call it an amendments convention, because that's what it is. It's an amendments convention. It's a convention of the states for purpose of proposing amendments, for proposing amendments, not for enacting them, for proposing them. So language is important. And by calling this, this convention an amendments convention, convention of the states for purposes of proposing amendments, you automatically restrict the scope of it. Script, it's just like saying, you, want, you say to a buddy of yours, you want to go out and have a drink? That's just a way we verbally restrict ourselves. It is not considered to be socially appropriate to say, do you want to go out and get drunk? You say, you want to go out and have a drink. This is a way we, using, the, using language, restrict our ability, uh, restrict our passion, restrict our interest in going farther than that. And that's how we should, we should use language in that way when we talk about this convention. So that's what this is a proposal for. It's a proposal to have a convention for proposing amendments, and then it has a germaneness. It has a subject matter. The convention has a subject matter. I have to admit that when I was first on a conference call with Mark and Mike, and I was hearing about this proposal for the first time, I hadn't read anything about it, and they were getting ready to tell me what the subject matter of this convention was, I was getting ready to not like it. I thought the chances of this, whatever was going to come next in this phone call, being something that was going to meet my standards for what I think a convention should be about was extremely low. And then they read it to me, and then I said, that's perfect. That's nearly perfect. I mean, that is as perfect as I think you can get in terms of defining what the proper scope of such a convention should be. And let me read it to you. It's in the packet that you have. It's on this sheet, which is Application for Convention of the States under Article 5 of the Constitution. I don't know if you can fish it out there. It's down here in section one of that form. And here's what it says. The legislature of the state of whatever, fill in your state, hereby applies to Congress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, under Article 5. I'll give you a second to pull it out, if you can find it. Is it in the packet? Or is it page I just have a free I just have a, a loose sheet here. 16. 16. Page 16 of the handbook, okay, that'll make it easier for everybody. Okay, we all got it? Go down to the end of that, se- that first paragraph of section one. Um, for calling the convention of, a, for this, of the states limited to proposing amendments to the Constitution of the United States that impose fiscal constraints, re- fiscal restraints on the federal government Limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government and limit the terms of office for its officials and for members of Congress. That's it. That's your subject matter of what this convention will be. Any, con- any amendment that is germane, and you all know about parliamentarians, you all know about ruling things out of order, you're all very experienced with that. This is the germaneness, this is what the order is about. And so therefore, when a convention convenes, What's going to be in order is anything that relates to this, and what's going to be out of order is anything that doesn't relate to this. And what comes in under fiscal restraints is obviously a balanced budget amendment. A balanced budget amendment is just, is just completely germane to imposing fiscal constraints on the federal government. So that would absolutely be germane. Uh, term limits, something that we tried to accomplish in a variety of different ways, and unfortunately, because of the Supreme Court, we're unable to accomplish it through the, through the state route. A term limits amendment would be germane, um, as would the repeal amendment uh, to restrict federal power. The repeal amendment that I favor, a majority of state legislatures uh, representing a majority of the population being able to repeal any federal law or regulation would also be germane. But here's the thing. We actually need a convention to hash this out. We do. You as legislators convene to hash things out. You don't sit in your offices back in your hometowns and just send in your vote for stuff. You have to get together. You have to have FaceTime. You have to see each other. You have to establish working groups and committees, and you work things out. That's what the founders did. They didn't just come in. They just didn't mail in their proxies. They assembled in Philadelphia in order to work things out. Things have to be worked out. There has to be deliberation over these things, and that is what the Convention of the States allows, as long as these proposals are germane. It's not something that I think can be front-loaded in advance. So that is the proposal. That's why I think this proposal, of all the Article 5 proposals that I've seen, is better. It's better than my own Bill of Federalism. My own Bill of Federalism with the Ten Amendments, too many moving parts, too complicated, everybody's going to like one and object to the other, as well as the fact that if you try to commit yourself to language up front, people are going to start picking the language apart. And in fact, they might be right to do so. But you're stuck with the language that you've picked because it's all been front-loaded. So you have to have a convention that deliberates over language just the way you deliberate over the language of your statutes. I'm not saying that each and every one of you writes that language, but you deliberate over that language and you can, you're free to raise objections to language that's proposed by others. All right, Let me, before I sit down, and, and I think the question period is going to be the most valuable part of this time, and I'm sure Mark has something to say as well, um, I do want to address the 2,000-pound gorilla in the room, which is the John Birch Society, and the Eagle Foreign and Phyllis Schlafly. Two weeks ago, I attended a 50, the 50th anniversary commemoration of the campaign of, for Barry Goldwater for President of the United States, 1964. It meant a lot to me because when I was 12 years old, I got up in front of my entire junior high school student body in Calumet City, Illinois, a very working class democratic town, and I debated on behalf of Barry Goldwater in front of my entire junior high school student body at the age of 12. And so I was very pleased to be included in this program and to go to this convention, uh, uh, this dinner, was at the Liaison Hotel across the street um, in commemorating this important, and Barry Goldwater Jr. was there, it was a wonderful event. And Phyllis Schlafly was there. And she's the one that wrote A Conscience of a Conservative. A book I read when I was 12 years old, it meant a lot to me. And she means a lot to me. And what she's done has meant a lot to me. But let me just tell you something. Phyllis Schlafly is not right about everything. Phyllis Schlafly was a very important person in her day. And she's still a very important person. But we are all entitled to our own independent opinions. She has an opinion about this. Her organization has an opinion about this. And she's entitled to that opinion. I just happen to think she's wrong about this and you are entitled to think she's wrong about this. And how many votes does Phyllis Schlafly actually command in your districts? I would say virtually none, none. And what I can say about, and, and, and I'll have enormous respect for Phyllis Schlafly in the Eagle Forum, I have almost no respect for the John Birch Society, none whatsoever, and I'm old enough to remember when the John Birch Society was considered a dirty word. I'm old enough to remember when William F. Buckley rode the John Birch Society out of the conservative movement because of the views that it held. I was actually amazed when I got involved in Article 5 to hear that there still was a John Birch Society out there. And as Mark said, what do they got, 15 members? Who could they possibly be? They've got a website, I guess. But anyway, look, who they are doesn't make them wrong. They could be right. The John Birch Society could be right about stuff. In this case, I would say with all due respect, they're not right about it. We're entitled to have our independent judgment about what the Constitution says, what it means, the situation that we find ourselves in today, which is unprecedented in American history, and the need for you as state legislators empowered by the Constitution to take control of the situation. I'll give you one other analogy, and that is the Electoral College. You have a constitutional role to play in selecting electors to the Electoral College. That's your job under the Constitution. You are federally empowered to do that job, and you do that job. Every four years, you do that job under the Federal Constitution. Your governor doesn't do it. You do it. This is the same job. The Federal Constitution gives you authority to do this. Now, the question is... Will you use the authority that the federal constitution gives you to restore the constitution that was given to us by the founding fathers and by those who wrote the amendments to the constitution that we already have? That's your responsibility. Thanks. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com pod. Thank you for listening.